Read with me now Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So reads the Word of God. It is daunting to be charged with carrying the clear, pure gospel out into the world of people who know little to nothing about God or his ways or his word. 
It's daunting, isn't it? How comfortable are you with that calling? Yet it is our calling, right? We agree on that. The Great Commission is given to the church. So where do we start? What do we say? How do we say it? How far do we go? And another question, what keeps us from doing it? Well, Luke records this experience here on Paul's second missionary journey that's that's amazingly instructive. It's amazingly instructive for the unique challenges of our day still today. It helps us answer each and every one of those questions. But it also provides us with an opportunity to test our hearts. And that's where we're going to finish today. We're going to hear some good instruction on how to proclaim the, the gospel in a world like ours. Because Mars Hill in Athens was very much a world like ours. We're going to receive some good instruction on how to share the gospel in, the, in a world like ours. But we're also going to receive an opportunity to test our hearts and see what might be standing in the way of our being proclaimers of this gospel truth in obedience to the very command that we've been given by Jesus himself. In fact, the parting command that he gave before returning to the Father after providing our salvation. We're going to see why it may seem so hard. Well, there are three things that we need to see Paul doing here in this text, and we've listed them for you in your bulletin as the outline for this passage. We need to see Paul in this passage first noticing the need. That's verses 16 through 21. Then we need to see him telling the truth. Now, telling the truth is not intended to be a way of talking about not lying, as we would often use the word. We're talking about telling the truth, proclaiming the gospel. Here's Paul telling the truth in the middle of Athens. And then third, verses 32 to 34, the conclusion of this text, receiving the results. So we see Paul doing each of these three things, noticing the need, telling the truth, and receiving the results. Let's just walk through this passage and and appreciate the story that's here. It's one of the more compelling pictures. You know how last week I said that text about Thessalonica and Berea, probably not on anybody's favorites list from the book of Acts. This one is on pretty much everybody's favorites list. This is the text we go to to figure out in a postmodern era. I have lost track of how many letters in the alphabet we can add to identify different generations. Um, But we're somewhere postmodern, post-gospel in our world today. Athens had a very similar mindset. So let's walk through this and appreciate this story and hear and learn Paul, noticing the need in verses 16 through 21, he was left here in Athens, if you remember. Last week he was accompanied here, escaping from Berea. He sent instructions to have Silas and Timothy join him as soon as they could. That group went back. Paul's now alone in Athens. He was left here in Athens alone while Silas and Timothy were back in Berea. And as we have noted before, he had the opportunity for a little downtime Those wounds from Philippi couldn't possibly have healed yet. Not fully. Plus, Paul must have been exhausted by this time. 
quickly moving from one city to the next, getting to know and established in each one of them. He had no team with him. Perfect time for a quick little break for some R&R, but not so with the Apostle Paul. Once he arrived, verse 16, at Athens, his spirit, Luke records, was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. The spiritual state of Athens overcame whatever else Paul might have been feeling at that moment. He looked at the city with God's eyes, not his own. He evaluated the city with with God's mind, not his own. With God's heart, he felt the need of Athens. This reminds me so much of Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, the parallels. Deeply moved in spirit by their spiritual lostness. That was Jesus looking at Jerusalem. That was Paul looking at Athens. Paul, even in his own isolated, depleted state, looked around Athens and saw the emptiness and despair of that leading city. That city in the world at the time that more people would probably have wanted to travel to than almost anywhere else besides Rome. And he looks at it and he sees emptiness and despair. He's noticing the need Verse 17, so he followed his custom. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. Those devout persons are probably the God-fearers like Cornelius back in chapter 10. And he also reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And this is where Paul's experience begins to really be helpful to us. But first, I want to note just a couple of points that will help us enter into these activities just a little bit more fully. Just a little bit of context to appreciate what he was doing and where he was going there in Athens. This marketplace was known in Greek as the Agora or the Agora, as we might call it. It spreads out north of the Acropolis, the hill in the city that had the Pantheon on it. It stretched out to the north of the Acropolis, as one commentator put it, a veritable forest of idols. It wasn't so much like our marketplace, though, the Agora, things we see today, a grocery store, say, or, or maybe a few other stores that are, that are only about commerce. That's not the marketplace in Athens. That's not what it was like as Paul visited that place. The marketplace was the center of cultural life. Government could even be run nearby. It was also the center of academic life. It was the place where you heard the news and kept up with what was going on, kept up with the latest developments in all sorts of areas. It's the place where the community came together and stayed informed. Paul engaged two different groups there in the marketplace who were well-established not only in Athens, but are also well-established in the history of philosophy. 
the Epicureans and the Stoics. You see them listed there in verse 18. Once again, though, this isn't really what we think of it being today. Philosophy in ancient Greece was not the, like what we think of as philosophy today. For us, philosophy is more of an academic discipline that, that kicks around abstract ideas in the academy, in, in places of education, in universities and so forth, but it really has little to do with, with daily life for most of us. In the marketplace of Athens, though, that was not the case. These philosophical groups were discussing more of what we would call worldview, and this was about the only place to engage it. So people were interested in what was going on there, and the philosophical schools that were represented there had the attention of the people, and they would be buzzing about the ideas that they heard there. The people paid attention to them. Look at verse 21 there, too. They were all about hearing new ideas. They couldn't wait to get to the marketplace as they got up in the morning and exchange ideas with one another and hear the latest thoughts from these philosophers. So a little taste of life in Athens and where Paul was when he reasoned every day with them there. Now the early read from these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on what Paul was sharing there was not very positive. Still in verse 18, you, say, you see that it's written there. Some of them said, what does this babbler wish to say? That's as cutting in Greek as it sounds in English. A babbler is one who essentially picks up ideas randomly, as randomly as a bird picks up seed, and then passes them off as his own without having any real philosophical system or structure of belief. So they're believing Paul to be somewhat of a novice, uninformed and the like. No real system of philosophy, more of a philosophical scrap collector. That's their view of him from the start. Still again in verse 18, others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, Luke adds. And we can read that and think, oh, okay, so some of them are picking up on what Paul is saying. Well, this is no trifling charge, right? So some of them think he's a babbler. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. That's the same thing that Socrates was accused of right here in Athens about 450 years earlier, and it ended up costing him his life. These guys took these things seriously. So that's no small matter that he's a preacher of strange ideas, a preacher of foreign divinities. Well, this may explain why, verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. <laughs> right? And that is exactly what it sounds like. You might think that was a sweet little invitation. Oh, Paul, new ideas. Come on up and talk about them. That's probably not. It sounds more like a command than like an invitation. And it is quite possible that Paul understood at this point that his life was on the line here in Athens. He would have known the history of philosophy there in that city. Now, the Areopagus is the Greek word for Mars Hill. That's why we talk about Mars Hill, and so many ministries can name themselves after this geographical spot in the middle of ancient Athens, Mars Hill. I've actually been to Mars Hill, and the steps that Paul probably went up to ascend Mars Hill and meet with the Areopagus at least when we were in Greece some years back, you could still go up those stairs, but 
they are so thin and so polished by common, by regular usage that you really have to take off your shoes to go up just in order to not lose your footing, not to slip down the hill. It's, um, it's an interesting place to be, and you get a sense of what Paul was doing there. So he went up to Mars Hill to meet with this group. Now again, Areopagus is the Greek word for Mars Hill. Primarily, it's just a place name there in Athens, but it's also the name that was given to the supreme body of for judicial and legislative matters there in, in Athens. So right, at, right near the, the Agora, right near the marketplace, there's this political center. And Paul's brought up to talk to these guys, so he was given the ears of the leading men in Athens at the time. He had an audience. And the philosophers who took him there asked him, verse 19, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? We want to hear it now in the presence of our authorities. Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Well, imagine what that sounds like to the Apostle Paul. He's just been brought before the leading council by the philosophers, and they say, Tell us what you believe. This was a great invitation. The unconverted group saying, tell us more about your thought. So Paul went off into it. Here then is where we can really go to school on his methodology. We've seen what he's doing so far, expressing his noticing of the need in Athens, and it's put him in a place of profound significance and influence, and he's about to start And so we're going to hear how he does it here, and this is why so many go to this passage to get instruction on how best to share the gospel in our day and age. He's about to address a group of people that are virtually spiritual clones of the people that you and I talk to in our world every single day. So let's watch and see how he does it. Section 2 of this passage, Telling the Truth. Verses 22 to 31. Look at verse 22 there. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's a warm start, right? But these words really are ambiguous. Very religious, especially. Today it would be like saying, I can see that you're very spiritual. Could be positive, could be negative depending on who's saying it and when and where and why and to whom. So it's, it's a little uncertain how Paul was getting started here other than just to acknowledge that we're talking in the spiritual realm, in the realm of religion. I can see that you're very religious. So he set a context now for his words. It got him started. With his next words in verse 23, all ambiguity melted away as he gave the basis for his assessment in verse 22. Verse 23 says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. I love the fact that there's a definite article in there. Not to a unknown God. We don't know if there's one, but if there is, here he is. To the unknown God. That's interesting. What therefore, Paul continues here, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, this sounds bold enough in English, 
It sounds like sort of a gracious way to say, let me fill in some blanks for you here, Athenians. But listen to what what it could sound like in Greek. One one commentator suggested it might, might have sounded like this. Since you acknowledge your ignorance of the divine nature, I will tell you about it. That's where Paul went with his second sentence recorded by Luke. I love that. Paul seized an available opening in this altar to the unknown God and then moved straight toward addressing an evident error in Athenian belief. This was a frontal assault on idol worship. But it wasn't just because they shouldn't be worshiping idols. He wasn't addressing the offensiveness of this to God. He was addressing their ignorance of the God about whom they should also be offended if any idol is granted credence in his presence. He's doing it for the right reasons. He's not just shaming them. He's saying, I want you to understand something about this God whom you don't know. This was because their inscription proved that they didn't know this God. So he's not shaming them for not knowing him. He's letting them know how important it is to know this God. This was no small problem that the Athenians were facing. And he's letting their leaders know it immediately as he starts to address the gospel here. Verse 23 This God, whom you don't know, Areopagus, this God made the world and everything in it. All right, they're listening already. That's a pretty bold claim as well. This God, whom you don't know, made the world and everything in it. So he's your creator, which means that you owe your very life to him. Your existence is due to him, this unknown God. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, verse 24 which means your allegiance is due to him. He didn't just make you, but you answer to him. That'll become clearer as we move along. He rules over all this God you don't know. And he does not live in temples made by man. Still in verse 24. He can't be localized. He can't be tamed or domesticated. He's not going to be satisfied sitting atop this monument that you've built to him in testimony to your own ignorance of him. It's not going to work with him. He's not that sort of God. You can't impress him. You can't charm him. You can't curry his favor by putting him in a place of honor because he already occupies the place of highest honor. This is the God you're missing, Athens. So you need to recognize that you can't wow him by putting up a monument to your own ignorance of him. It's probably not a good idea. It would be better for it to be absent than for it to be present and empty. Plus, verse 25, he's not served by human hands. 
as though he needed anything, since he has no need. And as Paul continues here, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he doesn't just make you, but he sustains your life as well, moment to moment. He gives you breath. That means every breath that you take is a gift from this God whom you don't know. How can you deal with a God like this? You can't build him anything he desires or, or give, him, give him anything he lacks. You can't earn his favor because there's nothing he wants. You can't barter with him because he owns it all. He needs nothing from you, but you owe him everything, and that's what Paul has given them so far in just a few sentences. This is an amazing quality of the true and living God, by the way. The medievals called this aseity. Aseity, underived self-existence. That's our theological word for today, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's a short little word, but it communicates an immense amount. Aseity, it's from the Latin ase, from himself. And not simply the fact of your existence, but the very continuation of your existence then is due to him and to him alone. He's the self-existent one, and anyone who exists finds the ground of their existence in him. He's unique, standalone. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Think about that. But Paul's not done yet. Verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In the most broad sense, this means that people live on land and fish live in water. He's divided the earth such that he's assigned your living place, but the sovereignty of God goes so much farther than that. And what he says here, while it seems simple, like he might have been taking a step back or sort of the philosophical version of just taking a breath or letting them catch their breath, it's, it's not like that. This is an advancement beyond what he said so far about the sovereign rule and purpose of this God. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. All people then came from one man made by God. So what do you discern from that? <laughs> you discern some things that would have been very troubling to the Athenians and to the Areopagites. What you discern from them is that there is no advantage in being from Athens. All people are the same before this God. Well, there's not even any advantage to being Greek. There's not an advantage to being tall or to being short or rich, or poor, or male, or female, or black, or white. There's no advantage any of us has beyond the other before this God. There's not even any advantage to finding your way to Athens once you are born. Because it's God who determines where you live and when. 
And all of this just fulfills his own purpose. You are a creature of this God. That's what Paul is telling the Athenians. And you don't stand out among his creatures. All of this just fulfills his own purpose. And what is that purpose? Verse 27. Here it is. Paul's transitioning toward the gospel. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Isn't that strange to hear from the Apostle Paul? So people are seeking out God, kind of feeling their way down a dark hallway, trying to find him hidden somewhere. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not very far from each one of us. And this is the first hint, folks, that something is really wrong in this picture. You could insinuate wrong at different places already in this dialogue Paul is having with the Athenians, but here's where you see, wow, something is really wrong. We're seeking this God, maybe even without knowing it. We don't know anything about him. We don't know how to recognize him when we get to him. We're cut off from this God. He's nearby, and yet we can't find him? That might be the ultimate insult to the Athenians up to this point. But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying our relationship with God is broken somehow. That's why we don't know him. That's why we're groping toward him. And we have altars to unknown gods scattered all through our lives. We can hear this still today. We're just not quite as adept as Paul might have been at making the connection between altars to an unknown God and the God of all creation whom we worship. We have altars to unknown gods scattered all through our lives that we erect in hope of finding him. Every time we cross our fingers or knock on wood or say a little prayer or wish for something better or think we deserve more or all of the other ways that we have of appealing to something higher that's unknown to us, that has some sort of control over our circumstances such that if we are in favorable place with this God, favorable things will happen. Every time we do this, we're appealing to an unknown God who is sovereign over our satisfaction. And that's just the beginning. There's so many other ways that we do this. Why is our society so inclined to pray when someone is mourning or in need? We'll say a prayer for you. That's why I included this, saying a little prayer. We're not talking about praying to the true and living God. We're talking about the way this world can oftentimes talk about prayer. When somebody loses someone to death or when someone is diagnosed with a known, un- known uncurable disease, we'll say a little prayer for you. All right, but to whom? Who's listening? It's an altar to an unknown God. Something inside us just believes that if we appease that God, if he's pleased with the altar that we erect to him, if he prefers a crossed fingers over knocking on wood, he'll grant that satisfaction we seek. 
Yet all the while, the true God whom we're really seeking is actually not far from us at all. The God who can actually make a difference with all of that is right there, and we can't find him. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. There's things in Scripture that say something similar to that, but it's probably a quote from an extra-biblical source. He's right there, and he's everything that we need and everything that we want. But we still can't find him. We're groping. His existence is so undeniably evident in creation that Paul can write to the Romans, we're without excuse And it's so undeniably evident that people should be seeking him. And we have a sense of that by this altar to an unknown God. But what sort of God is he? What can he do? We don't know. But in further demonstration of our ignorance, we can't find him on our own, even though he surrounds us. And the way Paul talks about it here, like water surrounds a fish. It's like a fish flitting around, knocking on wood, saying, where's the water? There's the picture that Paul is painting for these Athenians. And he then quoted one of their own poets, verse 28, to show that we recognize this. We see it. We just don't know what to do with it. Eratus is the poet. He's groping very near the truth when he wrote these words. We are indeed his offspring. Strategically, this was a brilliant move on Paul's part, citing one of their own poets, citing someone that they would recognize who has recognized such things. It'd kind of be like us quoting a New York Times bestselling author these days. He was in touch with his culture. It's another good lesson for us. But this was more than a mere strategy on Paul's part. He was telling the unvarnished truth to these Athenians. They were God's offspring, and that meant something. Primarily, it meant, verse 29, they ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. They should know better than that if they know that they are his offspring. They're not the offspring of inanimate objects. They're not the offspring of of some precious substance that doesn't even have the senses that they have. They're offsprings of, of something entirely different if they're actually thinking about this. They don't bear the image of of gold or silver or stone. They should recognize that, and they should realize what that means. This is Paul driving the point home, saying, this God whom you don't know is entirely different than the other stuff that surrounds you in your marketplace. What Paul is introducing them to here is a worldview and a sense of history in the hands of the true and living God. Things are headed somewhere in this world. This God whom you don't know is doing something. The God who made it and all of us who live in it placed us where we are and is working out all the details of history according to his plan for history. It's all going somewhere. 
It's realizing his purpose. For a time, he was patient with our ignorance of all of this. Even with the sort of ignorance that creates false gods out of stuff that he's made. For a time, he was patient with that. But now, verse 30, there's been a new development. Now he commands people everywhere to repent, to turn away from that kind of foolishness and unbelief. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. There's nowhere to go now at this point. What Paul's just told them is that this God not only made them and made everything that exists and that they answer to him, they belong to him, the sustaining of their life is in his hands. But now the day is done where he's patient with their ignorance because he's appointed a man who's going to judge them for that and he's confirmed that that is his appointed judge by raising him from the dead. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So judgment is coming. This God whom they don't know is going to hold them accountable. There's just no denying it. He's already set a day of judgment. He's appointed a judge, and he's proven that, they, that he's quite serious about all of that by this resurrection. Pretty solid proof. That moves us on from the telling of the truth to the receiving of the results. Paul is done at that point. Let's move into this third category quickly. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. He didn't meet the fate of Socrates. But some men joined him, Luke concludes, with the latest testimony about the state of the church. Some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, one of the leaders, and a woman named Damaris and some others. And with that, this account is finished. So some mocked, some listened, and some believed. But this threefold response was not Paul's primary concern. His primary concern is in point two, telling the truth. When it comes to receiving the results, that's entirely in God's hands. This wasn't his focus. He was called to tell the truth. And once he had done that, he was called just to receive the results, to receive God's work in fulfillment of his purpose and plan. And Paul did just that. But the Areopagus, who loved new ideas, interesting to note here, couldn't tolerate the resurrection. Didn't love that new idea. Not without God's help. Many feel that same way today. No room for the resurrection. That doesn't mean we are slow to mention it. It is the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion of the world, the resurrection of Jesus in fulfillment of prophecy. 
These days, though, we want a connection with God, even a relationship, but with God as we understand Him. We want a God that we can control. We want my God. That's not what Paul's preaching here. He's preaching the God who can't be domesticated, who cannot be controlled. So our calling is, like Paul, not to grow discouraged in the process, but just to keep noticing the need, telling the truth, and receiving the results, whatever results God is pleased to give. There's our calling in the proclamation of the gospel. Notice the need, tell the truth, and receive the results. That's our point here today. The point is we know that God has called us to be his witnesses to the truth of the gospel. We know that involves opening people's eyes to their need and to God's solution in Christ. We know that. The call goes out to all in Scripture, all who believe. And that's what needs to happen today. We are His messengers. But the fact is, most often, we still don't do it right? Do you feel that? The purpose is not to awaken guilt this morning, but just honesty, real realization that the gospel is very seldom on our lips, or at least not as often as it should be. And for those of you for whom it is, and there are some among us, praise God for that. You're not exalted above the rest because you do it more easily. Praise God for that. But we need to talk to the church as a whole this morning and say, here's where we belong. This is the stuff we're here to do. And it's delightful work. But most often we still don't do it. Why? Let's just walk backwards through the three things that Paul was doing here and see if we can find an answer to that question. And here, my friends, is where we're testing our hearts. We're talking about noticing the need, telling the truth, and receiving the results. Let's back up through them and test our hearts and see where it is that we stumble. Sometimes we stumble, we just don't want to do it because we're discouraged with the results. We don't receive the results as God's work. We think somehow there's a shortcoming in us, and because we're not seeing results, we, we just don't press on in this work. We don't see people come to faith in Christ, and so we're discouraged, and we wander off to other things. Well, look at the Apostle Paul here on Mars Hill. He didn't even finish his gospel presentation. It stopped before he talked in depth about the resurrection and called for their saving belief. The results must be left in God's hands. That is a crucial reminder for us today. And a reminder just to help us out of that trap if that's the place where we get hung up. Second, at other times it's because we just don't know what to say. We don't know how to tell the truth in this circumstance. I find that one hard to believe. But that's probably the most often quoted one as to why we don't witness more. I just don't know what to say. So the first thing I want to remind you of is that no one needed to teach Cubs fans 
how to celebrate the 2016 World Series win. And we hadn't had much practice, right? <laughs> Been more than 100 years since the last time we won, but nobody needed a class in how to celebrate the World Series win. We don't even mind if we don't have proper baseball terminology. We don't, we don't mind if we didn't recount some play in exactly the way an announcer would have. It doesn't matter. We won! And everybody's going to hear about that. And it's going to be the basis of fellowship among Cubs fans everywhere as we wear the logo as though we played on the team. So that's the first thing to remember. When we're excited about something, we don't need instruction in how to talk about it. Now, instruction is always helpful. I've spent a lot of the years of my life in instruction on this. So I'm not discrediting instruction. I'm just telling you, it's not as important as you think. So the second thing is, it's always beneficial to have some good resources that can help us tell the truth clearly, help us keep on track. We have a number of those. We have instruction classes that are done here. We have printed materials that are done here. We talk about this often. It can be part of your small group. There are so many ways to sharpen ourselves in this this one really shouldn't be the place where we're stumbling. If we love the gospel and we just make use of the resources that are there, we've got what we need to tell the truth. So finally, Paul's first step. This is the one that concerns me most. This is the place where I think we actually might get hung up. Noticing the need. Noticing the need. Do you see this world with the eyes of God? Do you assess this world with the mind of God? Do you feel with his heart as you engage this world? This is the place where I think we might get hung up most. Does the fallenness of this world move you more to anger and resentment? Or does it move you more to complaining and withdrawal? Or does it move you to sympathetic sorrow? Lamenting, like Paul in Athens, like Jesus in Jerusalem. Lamenting the emptiness and brokenness that you see there to the point where you become a vigilant and motivated witness. If there is any lack in our ability for effective gospel witness, I don't believe that results or resources define it. I really think we have to look first at our hearts, and there's the test this morning. And with that, I just want to close in prayer and give you just a moment in silence to begin a conversation with the Lord that can test that possibility. And we're going to do that as we prepare our hearts to remember the body and blood of the Lord and what he actually gave to accomplish our salvation 
And see if he might strengthen us through this remembrance to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take just a moment in silent prayer, and even while you do, musicians can return to the platform and servers to the front of the room. I will lead us in prayer in just a moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example we are given in your word of the Apostle Paul and his ministry in Athens and what remarkable and insightful and helpful things we can learn there. But I pray, Father, that foremost among them all that we learn from that encounter would be whether our hearts truly are aligned with yours when it comes to the neediness of this world and to the exclusive solution to that neediness that can be found in the gospel. The gospel that we celebrate right here, week by week. The giving of the body and blood of the Lord to reconcile to you all who are separated by you. The way in which the unknowable God has become known. The way in which the God who is already near becomes our God through our Savior and Lord. Oh, Father, as we remember the body and blood of the Lord this day, with the presence of your Spirit right here among us, doing your work in our hearts through the ministry of the Word and through this act of remembrance, I pray that we might grow in your likeness and be strengthened in our noticing of the need in this world such that the charge that you have given us to proclaim your truth becomes our delight and our joy. And, O oh Lord, I pray that you would show us results that give testimony to your presence here with us, completing the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.